Jesus is warning that one of the marks of the end of the time, of the end of time, the end of the age will be great deception. Now, even today, people are being deceived, but it is going to be accelerated. But we need to be ready even in our day. Remember what John said in 1 John? Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. That's why you need to know the word of God. Because if you don't know the word of God, you can't really test truth from error. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Jesus warned that one of the marks before the end of time will be great deception. And we need to be ready even in our day. 1 John chapter 4 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming, and now it is already in the world. Please join us in Matthew chapter 24 as we continue. Now, if you know the Romans and you've read much Roman history, then you already know that they were not destroyers of temples. They were preservers. And I think part of that was maybe superstition. You don't destroy the temple of another god. And Titus, as Josephus records, has given, had given specific orders not to destroy the temple. But remember, the temple is layered and covered in gold and silver. And somehow some flaming error or however it happened hit the temple and the great cedars of Lebanon began to burn and it went up in flames. And all that gold and silver melted and went between the cracks. Add to that, it was rumored that there was great chambers with treasures in them. And so with mighty crowbars or whatever they used, they literally pried apart the rocks to get the gold trapped between the rocks. In Jesus' prophecy was fulfilled where not one stone was left upon another. Here's a photo of some of those very stones. Some of you have stood with me in this spot there in the city of Jerusalem. And one of the stones that's a little brown on the front, that stone is taller than I am. <laughs> These are huge stones. You can't, I should have taken a picture of myself in the picture to give you a little definition. These are massive stones. And not one stone was left upon the other. The only thing that was left, of course, was the retaining wall that Herod built. The top was wiped off. And by the way, it's a reminder that we don't first live by reason. We live by revelation. It may seem by reason that the Twin Towers would never fall. And it may seem by reason that God's temple would never come down because now we're not talking about the might and power of America to protect one of its buildings. We're talking about God's house, God Almighty. We're speaking of his magnificent house. How is this going to come down? You don't live by reason. You live by revelation. And that's why there's many replacement theologians today, Christians who say God is done with Israel. How did they come to that conclusion? Well, there are a number of factors, but one being is nothing happened with the Jews for 1,900 years. So you had a ripe uh, environment to say that God was done with the Jewish people. 
But of course, he's not. And God said he would gather them at the end of time, and he did precisely what he wrote. In further describing the setting, we read now in verse 3, and as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Now, notice the scene changes. If you go back to chapter 21, they enter into the temple. Now they've left the temple, and they're sitting on the Mount of Olives, and they're looking across the Kidron Valley at the temple. And they come to him in private, and Mark 13 tells us there's four disciples who come to him, Peter, James, John, and Andrew specifically. And he's no longer speaking to the large group. He's speaking just to these four disciples. And if if you were sitting today on the Mount of Olives, this is what you'd see you would see that same temple platform, it's 35 acres square, and on it this pagan building, the Dome of the Rock along with one of their mosques next to it and some other smaller buildings. And God willing, next fall we will go back to Israel and maybe some of you will come and you will see this. But what did they see in Jesus' day? This is what they saw, they saw the house of the Lord. And so the disciples, they, they come to him in private, and he's doing precisely what he had already said after the nation officially rejected him and said, you're not God, you're, you're the devil's man, Matthew 12. Then Matthew 13, Dr. Pentecost used to always say, the way to understand chapter 13 is to know that chapter 12 comes before it. I'll never forget that. He burned that into my heart. They reject the nation, and so they reject Jesus. So in 13, he begins to speak to them in parables. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. And so the Olivet Discourse is not given to everyone. It's in a private meeting. And so they're asking. Remember, uh, when, when Abraham saw, say, the great pyramid had been in place for 1,000 years. When Moses saw it, it had been in place for 1,500 years. If Jesus and Mary saw it when they made their pilgrimage to Egypt, it had been in place for 3,000 years. And today it still stands 5,000 years later in some of the stones. And the great period, most of them were far smaller than the stones given in the temple. So it's inconceivable that this temple is going to come down. And so they're asking now, penetrating question. Tell us when these things will happen. What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? You'll notice three questions, though grammatically in Greek, two questions where the second question has two parts. Notice first they ask, tell us when will these things happen? They're referring to the prediction of the destruction of the temple. As already noted, that would be a fantastic event. The temple was three times the size of the Dome of the Rock. And they wanted to just know, how can this happen? They knew it couldn't just happen unless there was a plan, and men deliberately somehow tore it down. How is it going to take place? In addition, they asked this question, when? When is it going to happen? Now remember, this is an important question, not only as it relates to the temple, but to what Jesus just said, I can't come and establish my kingdom until, until the Jews say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so the Jewish conversion is critical to the second coming of Christ. And what will be the sign of your coming? Coming there is parousia. And so you will often hear pastors and theologians speak about the parousia. That's a reference to the second coming of Jesus. 
It was used in Koine Greek of a great king who was coming, and people would prepare for the coming of a king or sometimes even a governor. It can be used in less dramatic ways, but typically it's used of the coming of the Messiah in the New Testament when he will rule and reign over the earth in authority and in power. And so when will your coming take place? And notice the third question, or the second part of the second question, what will be the sign of your coming? That's the second question. And the end of the age. Now, the old English says the end of the world, but it's the word age. And so the new King James rightly renders it the end of the age. If you've read the preface to the King James 1611 version, they admitted that there was a lot of Greek words they were still learning and trying to understand, and that there would be better translations to follow. And two years later, they came out with another one, and a few years later after that, and they kept refining it. But it's best here, the end of the age, because he's speaking about the end of this age and the start of a coming age when Messiah will rule and reign for a thousand years. Now, with that said, Jesus is going to look down the corridors of time, and he's going to give them some signs, some pegs that they can hold on to, so we will know and understand when his coming will be. Now, that's all by way of introduction. (laughs) You still with me? All right, now I got 72 points. No, seven points, seven points. All right, first, this coming time, there will be a time of false Christ. There'll be a time of false Christ. We read that here in verses four and five. And Jesus answered and said to them, see to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. So the first characteristic is there's going to be false Christ. And the emphasis here in verse 5 is on the word many. You should maybe circle that. Jesus is warning that one of the marks of the end of the time, of the end of time, the end of the age will be great deception. Now even today people are being deceived, but it is going to be accelerated. But we need to be ready even in our day. Remember what John said in 1 John, "Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits." to see whether they are from God. That's why you need to know the word of God. Because if you don't know the word of God, you can't really test truth from error. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of Christ, the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you have heard is coming and now is already in the world. So in one sense, for 2,000 years, the spirit of Antichrist has been operational. And the word anti, literally, uh, is the Greek prefix, anti, transliterated, like in English, A-N-T-I, and it means instead of or against. And the meaning is applied in both ways in reference to this one who will embody that spirit, a literal physical man who will be called the Antichrist. He will come in the place of Christ. He will come against Christ. Now, let me pause for just a moment to remind you that John indicates that since the inception of the church, since Pentecost, the spirit of Antichrist has been at work. But it's going to crescendo in this future day. And so Jesus says, see to it that no one misleads you, implying there's a very real possibility of being misled. 
And this is going to be widespread in this coming time. In fact, he'll repeat it again during the second half of the tribulation. If you look at verse 24, he says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and provide great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Just because a man comes doing miracles doesn't mean he's a man from God because the devil is a great deceiver. A deceiver, a false teacher, a false pastor, a false prophet doesn't walk into a church with a sign around his neck saying, I am a false teacher. But if you read the book of Jude, you discover there are certain marks and characteristics by which we can discern a phony, a fake. Now, there's always been imposters in the church, but it seems to be growing, it seems to be multiplying, it seems to be deepening. But it's not until after the rapture that it's going to accelerate because we're going to see that this portion of Scripture is really dealing with the events that come after the rapture of the church. Now, let me make some general observations that I think are sometimes overlooked. First, when you uh, read these two chapters, uh, the focus is on Israel. He's already spoken of Israel's house or Israel's temple that is going to be left desolate. He's speaking of a future day for Israel when the Jews will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And since we know Jesus is going to return, and since we know that he cannot return until the Jewish people say of Jesus, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, we know that this is very significant. And of course, as we'll see in our weeks together, this time known as the Great Tribulation is not simply a New Testament doctrine, it's found in the Old Testament. It's called by the prophet Jeremiah the time of Jacob's trouble. And it's designed, among other things, to bring the Jews to repentance and true faith in Jesus. In Jeremiah 30 and verse 7, in describing this day, the prophet says, alas, for that day is great, there is none like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he will be saved from it. And the previous verse in chapter 30, in verse 3, um, he reminds them that God is going to get them and bring them back into the land. And when they're brought back into the land, it's going to be a time of terror and dread. Let me read uh, verse 5 of that chapter. He says, for thus says the Lord, I have heard a sound of terror of dread, and there was no peace. And then in verse 6 of Jeremiah 30, in describing this time frame, he likens it to a man in childbirth. How horrible will that be? He says, ask now and see if a male can give birth. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And Why have all faces turned pale? And again, in verse 7, he says, alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. This is a time that has never happened in Israel's history, much less in world history, that is going to come upon the whole world, as Jesus said in the Revelation. In Matthew 24, in verse 21, Jesus said this, For at that time there will be great tribulation, the kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and will never again happen. It's almost a perfect repeat of Daniel 12.1, if you know that chapter. Unless those days were limited, no one would survive, but those days will be limited because of the elect. So Jesus is using the same exact imagery that Daniel and the prophet Jeremiah uses. 
Now we know that the great tribulation, again called in the Old Testament, the Tanakh, the time of Jacob's trouble. You talk to Orthodox Jews today, they see that as a future event. They say, oh, it's coming. It's a horrible time. The time of Jacob's trouble hasn't happened yet. What is its function? Well, in the chapter before chapter 30, Jeremiah 29, 11, he says, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for your welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. Again, the context is in this horrible time. You say, how can this horrible time that is going to come upon the earth give us a sense of future and hope? Because it's going to result in their conversion, and it's going to result in great blessing where the prophet says Messiah will come back and rule and reign. In fact, in chapter 31, he will say this. This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. After the tribulation period, because the Jewish people are in faith, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, we use this verse all the time that God's going to give a future and a hope, and God bless those graduates who quote it every year, and, and I'm not saying you can't apply it, but don't miss its meaning. Its meaning is to the Jewish folks. I am going to give you a future and a hope. Now, as you read Jeremiah, you discover there are two gatherings. Don't blend them together. There is a gathering after the Babylonian captivity where they come from one nation. And then there's this gathering when they come from all the nations of the world at the end of time where God gathers them physically. So as Ezekiel will teach, he can renew them spiritually and he's going to use the great tribulation period in which to pull this off. Now, again, this is a very Jewish text. He's speaking here in this chapter of Jerusalem, of Judea, of the Sabbath, of the abomination of desolation that will take place in the temple. Uh, he's not speaking of Washington or Paris or London or Moscow. He's certainly not speaking of uh, Beaufort County. If you're listening online, we are in an area geographically we call the low country. There's no mountains here. Yet Jesus is going to speak to these to flee to the mountains, because if you've been there in Jerusalem, it's surrounded by mountains. Now, again, for many will come in my name, saying, I'm the Christ and will mislead many. Now, no one who takes this as futuristic, and I need to say parenthetically, there are some Christian pastors who say everything in Matthew 24, with the exception of the second coming, happened before 70 A.D., it's a distortion of Scripture, but they do that because of their replacement theology. And they apply a different principle of interpretation to prophecy than they do to the rest of Scripture. The things that Jesus is describing have never happened. How are the prophecies fulfilled for the second coming? Literally, actually, just as he said for the first coming, literally, actually, that's how they're going to be fulfilled for the second coming. So verses 15 through 26, at least for the futurists, no one deba debates it's the tribulation. Verse 15, that's never happened, the abomination of desolation. Um, verses 27 to 31 here in front of me, that relates to the second coming. The question is concerning verses 4, and 14, 4 to 14. One says, hey, did you hear about that earthquake? This must be the end. <laughs> I remember I was a new Christian. I went to this church and there was a snowstorm in Worcester, Massachusetts at the end of May, and somebody stood up and said, this is the end. These are the signs that God spoke of. I said, oh, really? 
And I, I didn't know much of the Bible, but that didn't make much sense to me. One of my professors in seminary was Dr. John Walvoord, and I was blessed to have him. And blessed, even after he retired, he would hang around the student lounge, and we could go and pick his mind. And even after I became the pastor here, I would call him on occasion. He'd answer my phone calls. And Dr. Walvoord wrote this, describing verses 4 to 14. He said, this is a time frame describing, quote, the general characteristics of the age leading up to the end, while at the same time recognizing that the prediction of difficulties which will characterize the entire period between the first and second coming of Christ are fulfilled in an intensified way as the age moves to the end to its conclusion in the great tribulation. I would agree with that. While on the one hand, you know, earthquakes and all that, they're significant. Why? Because on the one hand, they, you have to have a pregnancy before the birth pangs can begin. But these are not the birth pangs. What we're going to read and study this morning have never happened, not at least as described here. But it's not like one day just God flips a switch and it all happens. There's a number of things that unfold. To have the apostasy, the apostasies of apostasy in the great tribulation period, you have to have had seeds of apostasy sown for people to follow the Antichrist. That's happening in our day. And so when people call me on the Bible line, they say, hey, is that earthquake? Is this war potentially with China significant? Or I would say, well, yes and no. Um, Yes, in the sense, again, you have to have a pregnancy to have birth pangs. But no, in the sense, these are not the birth pangs. And so this period of time is divided by a middle event, verse 15, the abomination of desolation. So it will go from tribulation, and then Jesus will use another term, great tribulation. So we're told many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. Now hold your finger here and turn to Revelation chapter 6. We're going to pop back between Matthew 24 and Revelation 6. So don't lose Matthew 24. And I want you to see, because I don't want to convince you just for my own reason. I want scripture to interpret scripture. And I want you to see that this coming description in Matthew 4 is yet to take place in its truest sense because it is going to unfold fold in the sealed judgments. Revelation chapter 6, if you remember, they're in heaven and John is there and he says, who is worthy? Who can open up the seals? There's only one who can open it and his name is Jesus. And he breaks open the seals and the first seal is broken. Look at verse 2. I looked and behold a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. So we're told he's on a horse that's white, he has a bow, and he has a crown on his head. Who is he? Some sloppily say, oh, this must be Jesus, because Jesus in Revelation 19 is on a white horse. That's about the only comparison. About 30 years ago, Dr. Billy Graham wrote a book called The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. And indeed, he was correct by identifying this man as the coming Antichrist. I mean, when the Antichrist comes on the scene, he's going to have ripe opportunity More than likely, the war of Gog and Magog has happened after the rapture. Again, there's a space of time between the rapture and the signing of the treaty. Millions of believers, many who are leaders across the world, will be gone. There'll be total chaos in the world. Think about all the surgeries that weren't finished, all the planes that crashes, all the cars that crash, and on and on and on. You can think of all these scenarios. It will be a ripe environment for a leader to step on the scene. 
but he's not Jesus. Jesus doesn't have a bow. He has a sharp sword coming out of his mouth but he, because he's coming to bring judgment. And this man who has a bow, he has no arrows. It's like saying, look, I have a gun, but there's no bullets in it. And he's going to deceive the world with a false peace. And the world will embrace him. It will be the devil's trap. But indeed, beyond these false Christs, and again, when this man steps on the scene, there'll be a multiplicity of other satanic agents who will also represent him. There'll also be a time of unending conflicts. Not only a time of false Christ, but unending conflicts. Let me read verse 6 of Matthew 24. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for these things must take place. But that is not yet the end, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Now, you would think in 2,000 years since Jesus was here that we could have somehow solved the problem of war. And of course, World War I was so horrific, so intense so damaging to the human mind and spirit, man declared it the war to end all wars. But it was a short throw until World War II came. But Jesus makes it clear that the wars of this world will not be completed until he comes back. He says, see to it that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. Now you can think about it. We've got the challenges of North Korea We've got the militaristic spirit of, of the Chinese. We have uh, the Turks and the Iranians and the Russians who want to drive Israel into the sea. In the 6,000 years of recorded history, people say, how old is the world? Well, we only have 6,000 years of recorded history, period. 6,000 years. <laughs> you think maybe it's 6,000 years old? I think so. Thereabouts. But in the 6,000 years of recorded history... They say 600 million people have been killed in wars, and half of those in the last 100 years. Add to that the growing terrorism and bombings and hijackings and assassinations and so forth. Now, don't miss this. To have what we are going to read here in this chapter called birth pangs, you have to have a pregnancy. So go back to Revelation 6. I hope your finger's still there. And we read here that, again, the church is gone. A door was opened in heaven. The church is not mentioned again to Revelation 19. And another horse, a red horse, verse 4, went out to him who sat on it. It was granted to take peace from the earth. And that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. So he's on a red horse. It's a bled blood red horse. It's fiery. It's, it's a puros horse, the color of blood. He comes and he comes with death. He comes with blood. He comes with war warfare. And John describes him as coming with a great sword. He has some powerful weapon. Maybe it's a weapon of mass destruction. And he takes peace, notice this text says, from the earth, which tells you this is not localized, this war to Israel. This is worldwide in scope. Now, God is the designer of all judgment. It was granted. It was given him permission. God is sovereign in all of this, as we will see. Jesus said, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. Please join us tomorrow for part three and the conclusion of Pastor Carl's sermon, the beginning of the end. One of the most difficult questions posed by both Christians and skeptics of Christianity is the question, what about those who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, 
Dr. Brogy answers that question biblically and clearly by explaining the justice of God, the lostness of mankind, and the incredible power of the gospel in his book, Are the Unevangelized Really Lost? You can receive your own copy today with a donation of any amount to Search the Scriptures. Please call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 to receive your copy today. If you enjoyed today's message, remember that you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures and requesting program God's Prophetic Schedule 010. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.